Hey guys, it's Casey, and I'm here to let you know that dun dun dun, spring collective signups are open. We are so excited to start studying with you all on February 8th. We will be meeting every Monday and Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time until April 14th. 10 week with Leah and I giving you the realest, rawest, and most relatable examples covering every item on the task list. We are going to make your studying journey fun AF. If you like listening to us here, you're going to love us in the collective. So head over to studynotesaba.com, sign up for the spring collective, and for the next week, early bird signups will get $50 off with coupon code EARLYAF. Do it. Don't miss out. Love you. Mean it. Study notes, ABA. ABA and a little X right it away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. And we are here with episode 83 Casey, what do you have for us today? All right, it's not great, but it's, it's I'm I'm clutching, grasping for rhymes. Eighty three. Liat is so excited for this episode; she's gonna pee. This is the most accurate rhyme you've ever said. Actually, I think it was great <laughs> because our topic we were talking about today is something I am absolutely fascinated in. I think, I mean. I know I was really fascinated in hostage negotiation. I think that's fascinating. But we are talking today about cults. And we have an awesome guest uh, who was in a cult, a cult that probably if you are as into cults as I am, you have heard the name before as it's on some TV shows, podcasts, radio shows, wherever you listen. So get excited. But before we get started we need to give ourselves some reinforcement because we live for that shit. So Casey, what is our review of the day? All right. This one's coming in from Carter Johnson. If you're listening, thank you. Hey guys, new listener here. I'm currently working on my master's in ABA and had a final for my advanced ABA class tonight. This past week, I've either been studying my notes or listening to you guys. I am obsessed with y'all. You guys are awesome, and I just wanted to let you know that you guys actually helped me on my final. Y'all are awesome. Heart. Thank you, Carter. I hope you ace that final, and thanks for listening and leaving such a sweet review. means so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope we were there with you on that test and all your ABA tests to come. And when you're ready for your BCVAO test, we're ready for you. I hope you heard Liat's raspy ass voice in your head the whole time. I know that's like a repeated theme. Have you noticed that? Everyone's like, Liat, your raspy voice was in my head. <laughs> so true. I'm like, I don't know if that's good or bad, but whatever. All right. All right. I, I'm too excited for this. We need to get into today's show. And again, our guest, I actually had read an article I found online and it was written by the guest and we'll definitely link it in the show notes. And it was just so beautifully written about um, their experience in a cult and, you know, and how kind of the cult lifestyle follows you thereafter or in different areas of life that you don't even realize. And I thought it was just like a really interesting parallel and 
Without further ado, Casey, tell us about our guest today. All right. Our guest today is Daniela Mestinek-Young. She is an American author and TEDx speaker. Um, her TEDx episode was awesome. Um, Daniela is working on a memoir called Uncultured as We Speak. Daniela was born a third-generation member of the infamous religious cult, the Children of God, which has um, garnered national and international attention for its unconventional and crim criminal practices, including forced polyamory, Pol or polygamy, polygamy, polygamy. No, I can't pronounce shit. Uh, child marriages, <laughs> religious prostitution, and widespread pedophilia. At 15 years of age, she was excommunicated from the cult. She moved to America all alone and broke AF um, and started to attend school for the first time in her life, which is crazy. Upon graduating college, she commissioned into the U.S. Army as an intelligence officer, serving for over six years, making the rank of captain and deploying twice to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. That is badass. What is she up to today? Well, she lives in Seattle. She's married to a special ops helicopter pilot, has a three-year-old daughter who speaks three languages fluently, is co-founder of an HR tech company and is an activist for veterans, military spouses, and many others who are going through their own intense cultural transitions. Woo, that was a lot. Daniela, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This uh, is amazing. I honestly, when, when I hear all the things you've done, I, I just think all that time up until you were 15, right? That's when you were in the cult until? You uh, yes, I was almost 16 when I okay, so to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm thinking, I'm like, that must have been you just like all this stored energy, like ready to be kinetic. You're like, all right, I got all this shit to do. I've been in this place. I'm ready to fly because all the things you've done are really, 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 really impressive. So thanks for coming. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're not wrong about that. I've, every time I've been realizing this as I've had a kid, you know, my daughter's actually almost five now. And every time people ask me, like, how how did you get out of the cult thinking? Like, how did you get away? And I'm like, my, like, behaviorally, I was just so different that I was always, like you said, Leah, you know, just kind of like waiting to go, like wanting to read books, wanting to study. And so when I, when I got released into the world at 16, I was just like, all right, let's go. And you said you were not in it, that you moved to America. Where were you living before? So the, this cult, Children of God, like it started out of the American kind of hippie era and the searching. So it started in California in 1969. But then in the, the mid 70s, at some point, uh, when things were kind of heating up for cults and you were having your Jim's, Jim Jones, mass suicides and all that, our prophet, you know, got his revelations from God to spread all over the world. Um, to go to go spread God's message, which was a convenient way of getting all the followers out of the U.S. So I was born as an American citizen, but I was born in the Philippines, spent the first few years of my life in different communes in Asia, and then spent the majority of my life growing up in Brazil um, with a little time in Mexico after that as well. And so then when I got excommunicated, I was in Guadalajara, Mexico, and moved to Texas from there. Um, which was really, I mean, my first time ever in the U.S. was when I was 14. And then when I moved back for high school at almost 16. Were you educated when you were living in all these places? Um, not exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the 
this cult was definitely very like full time. Like everyone was expected to leave the world, cut all ties with friends or family on the outside. Nobody worked jobs outside of the commune other than essentially fundraising and begging for money and that kind of stuff, which they called living by faith because God will provide. I saw that in your rapping video. (laughs) And my rapping video. Yes. Yes. I was a, a big kind of child star in the the videos and performances that we would do to then sell for for money, which uh, I enjoyed showing my soldiers later when I was an army captain. I'd be like, "No, but watch this rap video." <laughs> Wait, what if what if you're a kid in this cult? Because I did see also in the documentary I watched on A and E. What what was that one called? Or it was like one episode of it. Yeah, cults and extreme beliefs. Yes, and then there's one on. Uh, children of God. Mm-hmm. And I saw that they would have the children perform, dance, um, and then they do something called fishing. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So, flirty fishing, this was one of David Berg's like early doctrines that really, I, I, I literally described this as if you think about entrepreneurship the way it is today, right? Startups and startup companies, and you have to like differentiate your unique value to the business world. And so in the 1970s, there was like thousands of new religious movements, right? Like everyone was doing a new thing. Um, I suspect we're going to see more of this after 2020, but uh, we'll get to that later. Um, but, and so David Berg kind of, in my opinion, like hooked on sex as his differentiating factor for his new movement. And so his entire theory was the Christians got it wrong. The original sin wasn't the sex. It was the disobeying God, right? The questioning God, the quest for knowledge, bringing us back to why we didn't go to school. Um, Because, you know, the quest for knowledge is the ultimate evil. All you should ever do is listen to God. And so he's kind of started like veering further down this path of like weird sexuality, but he did it in a way, you know, so first he sort of like set aside his first wife and married this younger woman. And then he started talking about like open love um, in between. That's where, you know, the polyamory comes from. So like everyone was kind of expected it was supposedly voluntary, like, oh, you can sleep with whoever you want because whatever is done in love is pure but it was expected because group behavior. And then he started getting into, there's a Bible verse that says, I will make you fishers of men in Matthew. And so he took that to mean, hey, great, I can send my wife out to be a hooker for Jesus. And and they literally called it hookers for Jesus. (laughs) Um, And you can find- They need better branding. I mean, come on. Uh, and then it, it became called flirty fishing, you know, and you can find these images of like the naked cartoon woman literally with a fish hook through her, her body. Right. And uh, so my grandfather was brought, one of my grandfathers was brought into the group this way. Um, and it, it, it turned into, you know, thousands of women were just literally being sent out as prostitutes being and they would out, bring in out of the cult or like, so like they literally would go on the streets or like meet someone on Craigslist or, uh, well, Craigslist wasn't allowed. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. 
And so it was, you know, we already had the evangelical Christian thing of witnessing or proselytizing, you know, so you got to go out and you, it's not enough to just believe you have to go out and convert people. And so this was just another form of that. It was instead of going out during the day, hitting the streets, trying to find lost souls, you're going out at night to these clubs and you are sharing God's love with them, whatever that means. And then if they are, you know, happy enough, they will give you money or they will buy you food or they might even come and join our our group, you know, which of course was never called a cult because the first rule of cults is you're not in a cult. Um, so it's our, you know, the family is really what we sort of refer to it internally as. They'll they'll come join the family and they'll be so overwhelmed. And, you know, as in cases with my grandfather happened, he, he fell in love with my grandmother, he followed her and he stayed for probably almost 50 years. I mean, until- So was death. she fishing essentially? Oh yeah. She was she was one of the stars. <laughs> wow. She was one of Berg's favorites. So I was going to ask, yeah, can you back up? Like, as someone who has not watched all this cult stuff like Leah, and, like, maybe our listeners have kind of no idea, like, when I when we yeah, first sorry, talk to you. I get overly excited. I'm sorry. I, like, have so many questions. So, yes, Casey, please so, like, back, back up. back up to, A, like, talk about your mom, and you just kind of talked about your grandparents, how they were part of it, but... How did you get into it? Like what it was that kind of progression look like? Yeah. So, okay. So actually in very early, so maybe 69 or 70, my grandmother, different grandmother, um, who actually just passed away this week, but she was kind of this troubled teenager that was having some like now we know is uh, mental health behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. um, and she found the children of God, which at the time was like this nice religious group, um, you know, that was sort of taking hippies in and getting them off drugs and alcohol and getting them high on Jesus, as they called it. And her family was so happy that she found this thing that was getting her on the straight and narrow path that my great grandmother actually like donated land in Texas. Berg built one of his first communes on that. And then she and her boyfriend at the time, my grandfather joined um, the cult. My grandfather had, I think, no, I think he actually had a college degree. He was a, a CPA. And so he became like one of the senior financial guys and still is to this day, I believe, the the CFO of whatever still exists of the children yeah. of God. And so then my mom was born and she was one of the early kids. Like she was probably one of the first 10 children born into the children of God. And then she ended up getting pregnant with me at the age of 14. So my mom at the age of 13 was actually sent by her her parents to the prophet um, for this, you know, now infamous ceremony where the prophet uh, had weddings with, I want to say, 14 different girls from the ages of 14 to three. Um, the ceremony was planned by the three-year-old girl's mother, um, and they were sort of, you know, delivered to this prophet. And Did you so say three-year-old? Yeah. So all the, that child bride stuff, the, you know, the children making dancing videos turned into you know, send your children to the prophet. He's were they marrying David? He'd marry, it, they'd marry David? It was supposed to be symbolic of them being married to Jesus and to the family. Um, but of course, there was all kinds of uh, physical 
interaction with the prophet after that. This group included, you know, his daughter, his granddaughter. And this was all stuff that was being like seeded into the normal behavior for how we should interact with children. And it was all still based on this concept that like love is pure and sex is love. And the Bible says unto the pure, all things are pure. Therefore, everything we do is fine as long as it's done in love. And, you know, you add this onto like a group that has been completely isolated, but was formed off of the idea of rejecting societal society's norms in the first place, which was kind of what the entire hippie movement was about. You know, it, it all made sense to them at the time. Um, and then my mom ended up at 14 getting pregnant from like Berg's number, number three guy who was a 43 year old man, you know, father of six children already. Um, I definitely have at least 24 siblings in what I call cult math. <laughs> so either, <laughs> either a step sibling of, of one of my mom's three husbands or a, um, or two husbands plus my, my father or, you know, um, mm -hmm. a half sibling or something like that. Wait, so your father, when he got your mother pregnant, he was 43 and she was 14. Yes. So she had you when she was 15 years old. Yes. Assuming she had a birthday in between then. Yes, just barely. <laughs> and um, so, for example, something like this was common? It was, um, okay, so at the time, it was almost like an awakening moment for David Berg, because apparently nobody would really done the math that if you have unlimited sex with children and you don't believe in birth control, all of these things which were going on in the 80s in the Children of God, then you might end up with very young pregnant teenagers. And that is, you know, when you have a 15-year-old with a baby, you can't say nobody has ever touched this child. Right. And so that becomes proof. And so my conception and birth was kind of like, okay, we said no sex with minors, they had permission, so don't get upset. However, now we need to make new rules. And it, it was this interesting thing when you look at group behavior, which because they never said the prophet was wrong. Um, because of course you never want to say your prophet was wrong, right? Every time the world doesn't end, you have a reason God changed his mind. And, and so this was briefed as we're not wrong, right? All sex is still pure. All love is still pure, but the world just doesn't understand it. So very much like Allah, the Mormons and giving up polygamy. It was like, we still believe this. We still believe this is the ultimate good. However, we can't practice it anymore because of the world. Um, of course, what that turns into is, and you will find uh, second generation children of God people that actually believed that like all of the abuse stopped in 1985, um, which of course, of course, of course, is very not true. <laughs> and in you know my my generation or the younger part of the second generation just kind of grew up with an entire society that still believed in sex is the greatest good, very sexualized, prioritized environment, but most of the abuse was just happening in secret. So uh, as a, so let's say your mom, for example, uh, 
a child still at the age of 14. Was that something that, so is that something that someone her age was like dreading or like you look at that as like, oh, wow, I finally get to have sex. I must be at a religious level. Like, you know, to me, I'm like, that sounds fucking terrible and so punishing. But like, was this like actually looked at as like, lucky you, you've got here or something? Because I mean, I'm just wondering if they brainwashed you into that, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, and so one of the interesting things is talking to my mom even today, you know, my mom has now been out of the cult for almost 10 years and she is very much like me and that she's done a lot of work sort of investigating why and how this all happened. But, you know, she will say that, you know, so she was considered an adult when she was 12 and it was kind of this experiment and she was given wine at breakfast and told to like make a list of all the men she would like to have sex with first. And, but this was considered like, she was one of the oldest kids. So all she ever wanted to do was be an adult and be a grown up and be part of the mission and God's will and all of that. And, um, you know, I, I even see like some of the same things in my life as a kid where when you're, you're not in school, you're being worked like child labor, you're getting extreme corporal, like physical discipline all the time. Like the sexual abuse part of it is not always the worst part of your day. And so it starts shifting in your head. And I think for those first teenagers, it was very much, you know, when, when you or I call my mom a child and call what happens statutory rape, she will respond with, yes, I get that that's a fact. However, at 14, I didn't see myself as a child. I wanted to have a baby. I was in love with that man. He was very nice to me, you know, and all of those things. So much brainwashing. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, I am just like, Wow. Okay. So <laughs> next. So you're born to your mom. And also I'm I'm thinking like, it's probably not that terrible. I, I'm saying, I, I don't know. I can't speak, but like your mom said, I felt like I was an adult. I felt like I was this because I'm assuming without education, without talking about future planning of what you're going to do in your life, the goal is like, you are going to be a wife. You will be you know, you will, I'm assuming you will bring more people to this church, your children that you have, or this, whatever you get, family. Yeah. Um, and so it's like your con contributing factor, like, oh, well, you, now you could bring your part to all of us or something. Yes. Um, and, you know, not unlike many of the major religions, you know, this was an, an offshoot of Christianity. Therefore, it was pretty... Uh, you know, misogynistic and, and not great for women and the roles for women, you know, we had these concepts of like, you're supposed to be a Bible woman and you're just supposed to live to have babies and serve men and, you know, win the world for Jesus. And women were always at a much greater disadvantage, um, which is also true in any culture where the sexual autonomy is controlled, right, for women. So, Polyamory can work. Forced polyamory definitely does not, you know, not abuse women and children. Like for us, that would seem 
like terrible. The idea that like, I'm going to stop my life. I'm not going to be able to go to college. I'm not going to be able to get this job. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to, you know, go date in college, join a sorority, whatever, like the hell people look at as steps of life here. It's like, instead it's, you don't know those things anyways, because you're already ignorant to what's out there because they're blinding you so much that this is probably like, oh, great. Now I get to do my fulfilling role um, of this community. Oh, exactly. You know, and especially in the in the era when my mom is growing up, you know, in the 70s and 80s, like they're very isolated. They're very cut off from the world and everything you know about the world is it's big, bad, evil on the outside. But also we're taught that, you know, Jesus is going to come back. And there was literally a song called you know, what am I going to do when I get to be 25? Something, something, will I even be alive? You know, and we were all growing up to be like, the greatest thing you can do is have babies that will grow up to be in children of God. And then eventually you and your children will be a martyr for your faith. You'll die in the, in the apocalypse, you know, probably by fire and you will glorify God. And that was the reason why we didn't go to school, why we didn't do higher education. So yeah, there was definitely no, you know, like, like what do you even need an education past high school for sure. And then, you know, it was all homeschooled a couple hours a day. If you were lucky, nothing was standardized. And, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I know very, very few. I'm one of the few women I know from the cult that can have children that didn't have a baby before the age of 20, right? So didn't have a baby in their teens. And that's, say, what? that's just how it turned out. That's just luck of the cards or kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, at, at 16, what eventually happened, like they eventually put together after the Berg died, um, his successor put together what they called the Charter of Rights and Responsibilities. And it was kind of like in an organization when it gets big enough and you build your org charts and you try to standardize the the way that your organization is put together. And a lot of people actually think it was the beginning of the end, because once you introduce the idea of rights to people, they don't like give those up. Mm -hmm. But um, it also standardized like, okay, you're an adult at 16. And at 16, you're a full like voting member. And you also have full like access to have sex. And there was no birth control, no birth control whatsoever it was like super against the will of God. And so of course, you end up, you know, with a lot of 16 year old mothers. So, so I'm sorry, I don't know if this is too personal, but you know, I'm gonna ask because I ask everything and you could say no. Were you also involved sexually with some of these older men at your age and you just got lucky that you didn't get pregnant? Yeah, for sure. So I, you know, until the age of 10, we lived in these sort of much larger communes. We were very close to the leadership where I think in some ways, it's worse, right? The, the, the closer and closer you get to like the proverbial flagpole, the, the more bureaucracy you have, the more powerful people that can do whatever they want because they know they're not gonna, gonna be touched. And so I definitely went through like a lot of abuse. And when us younger generation was growing up, it's now you have the grown adults, but you also have all the like older teenage boys that have grown up being indoctrinated by this and being abused themselves and are now like working it out on the younger children. 
So you definitely have all of that together. When I was 10, that was when the, you know, Burke died a few years earlier. There was this whole sort of organizational shift. And by the luck of the draw, we went into a smaller um, community, which interestingly, I thought for, for years, like that was the first time that I wasn't being sexually abused in my life was from the ages of 10 to 13, um, at least physically, you know, still surrounded by all that harmful stuff. But, and we were, you know, really involved in, in charity work in the community there in Brazil. And I was learning Portuguese. And I think back on that as like the times we actually were missionaries. And then I found out, you know, on a recent trip to Brazil that the the other adult man in the commune was just abusing his stepchildren the whole time and like wasn't getting to us but was getting to his own kids and it to me just sort of reinforced that like this wasn't individual bad apples right this was an entire culture that promoted this behavior <clears throat> um and then you know later on in my teen years, I, I would say, uh, Liat, to your question, you know, the majority of my sexual abuse was before I could get pregnant. Um, oh. and, and in my teen years, I had a couple of, you know, bad encounters. But and I guess, yeah, I just I just got lucky. And then I was gone. All right. I need to know, at 15 years old, how, like, did you ever, like, when was the shift where you're like, I got to get the F out of here? Like, were you like drinking the Kool-Aid the whole time? And or were you a kid who was questioning everything and being like, this is not right? Or like, I can picture you as a questioner. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> these are actually these are all moments in my book, right? So yeah, first of all, when I was three years old, and my mom was like teaching me to read, I remember her telling me this line that has like influenced my entire life, which was the only thing you need from society is someone to teach you to read. Um, and I'm actually planning to get a tattoo of that somewhere in all the languages that I can now read. Um, That's and cool. She would use her own lack of education basically as an example, because she was like, I never had an education in English. And yet I turned myself into this sort of badass secretary, you know, all within the within the cult, but still. And she was like, the only thing you need in life is I'm gonna teach you to read, you can go forth and do whatever you want. So I, you know, as a three year old was just like, okay, I'm gonna do that. You know, she doesn't even remember telling me this, but I do. And at six, I openly questioned the veracity of the Bible for the first time after learning to play broken telephone and <laughs> proceeded to have a, a really bad, you know, sort of 10 hours of isolation and abuse uh, punishment. And that was the day I remember for the first time being like, I don't think this adult who's physically and sexually abusing me, like is doing the will of God. I don't think this is love. But the only context I had for that as a six year old was to think, I've been told that if you grow up and you leave the family, you're going to hell, man, hell's going to suck. <laughs> and like, that, was my, that was my, literally at six years old, you know, and I say today, like, I think I was born an atheist, born a questioner. I don't think I was ever going to be religious. I just happened to be born in an environment where 
not only was that not a choice for me and my people and my family, but I didn't even know that was a choice for other people. You know, I didn't know there were other religions or anything other than you don't believe God and our ultimate version of God, you're going to hell. Um, and then definitely around 11 was when I, I really started to be like, okay, I want to get out of here. I need to make a plan to leave. Um, and it, it took me about four years, but yeah, it was sort of just un, unbridling my, my questioning nature and my just sort of, you know, what was always seen as bad behavior, which now I just see as an inquisitive child who wanted to learn things. And then when I was, I was 14, we went to the U.S. and I was like, Americans don't seem that evil. And then 9-11 happened, which is, you know, what my article was written about that you mentioned earlier. And I was like, you know, we're all, we're all praising Jesus for his judgment on Babylon, the whore, America. And I don't think this is right. You know, 3,000 people are dead, like something's wrong here. Um, and so that was when I really, I think, started like sort of intentionally thinking about, you know, I remember hearing the word religious extremists in relation to the terrorists and the attacks of 9-11 and thinking, huh, I wonder if we are religious extremists as well. And, and that was when I really started kind of like being like, I need to get out, um, looking at all of this as just programming and brainwashing and this is not what I want to do and then we we moved back to Mexico and everything just sort of snowballed for me it was a combination of like angry teenager I don't want to move back to a third world country I don't want to be a missionary I don't want to learn a new language um and then I got you know pretty violently raped by a leader and a, a friend of my dad's and I was just done at that point. I was like, I'm done. I'm not staying here. Um, and so I just broke every cult rule that I could until they finally kicked me out. Oh, you got kicked out. Essentially. Yes. Um, which wow. they called excommunicated, you know, okay. um, Were you just yeah. like ripping up the Bible and just like stomping on it, lighting it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I was brave enough to do that. But, um, I was, you know, smoking and sneaking out of the house to see boys that were not in the cults, which was not allowed. Um, and that was what eventually sort of, you know, got me in enough trouble. And the thing with, you know, groups and cults is like, they want to keep you, but they also can't keep you if you're too much of like a bad influence. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually really funny for me watching them try to decide whether they were going to excommunicate me or not, because I was, I was the oldest third generation kid at the time. My family was quite famous. I was famous. Like Daniela, so-and-so and so-and-so's daughter from the videos, like everyone was going to hear about me leaving the cult. I would be the first kind of of the younger generation to leave on my own decision, not just with my parents. And so they were trying to, they were kind of going back and forth, like, we don't want her here because she's, you know, spoiling all the other teenagers, but we also don't want the bad, basically, press of her leaving. And like, what's going to happen if she goes, we're going to lose our CFA, her grandpa, who still is the CFA there. Yep. Yeah. Um so when you left, the rest of your family, was your mom at any point like, get out, get out, get out? Or your mom's like, bless your soul. I'm so worried. 
spy, um, I'll talk to you when you're in hell, you know, or something <laughs> along those lines, or like, what was it like? <laughs> no, um, but I can tell you're a fantastic behavioral analyst because you like know all of the things my mom thinks. Um, <laughs> um, no, so, you know, one of the reasons I think I got out early and I was a bit more successful than some of my counterparts was because my mom was born and raised in it. And so as much at 15, as much as I was like, burn it all down, I want to be gone, when it actually came time to be like, okay, you're going to leave everything you've ever known and go out into a world that you have no, no friends, no clue about. I was scared. And I was like, uh, maybe it's not so bad, right? Maybe I'll just move to a different commune away from my parents and like be an independent. I was about to be 16. So I was going to be an adult in, in cult world. Um, and my mom took me out on a walk where nobody could possibly overhear us. And she was like, Daniela, go. She was like, you know, we already set up uh, one of my older stepsisters, because she was at this point and still is married to a, a man who's much older than her. So I had an older stepsister who I'd met about three times who lived in Houston, who was willing to give me, you know, a mattress on her floor. And my mom was like, you're going to keep having these issues if you stay, like, just go, like, it'll be hard, but just go. Um, so I, I did get lucky there. And also the fact that my parents never like cut me off completely. Like my mom was always, you know, would, would fight if I wanted to come back and visit or was, would like fight to be there. Like she was at my high school graduation. Um, and years later she would be at my, my promotion to captain. Um, so yeah, we've had a, we've been able to continue on our relationship and I didn't have to lose all my family, but I definitely did get, you know, at 15 sort of kicked out from everything I knew and dropped off uh, with someone I didn't know well and zero dollars and told, you know, go figure out life. So you started high school at 15? And with uh, Basically 16. Yes. And that was fun, you know, because I... All I ever wanted was to go to school, right? If you asked me at the time, like, I wasn't like someone leaving a cult. I was just leaving this situation because I wanted to go to high school. And that was my big rebellion. And I really wanted to go to college. And I knew that like, high school was the easiest way in. So I had to leave while I was still in high school. And I, I showed up at the high school I was zoned for with my social security card and my passport, which were basically the only two pieces of paperwork that I owned. And they, you know, just sort of looked at me and said, we, we can't enroll you in high school. You don't exist. And you um, have no prior schooling that is on any record. No schooling on any record. You don't exist. But now that we know you exist, if we don't, if we don't find out you're enrolled somewhere in the next five days, we have to, we do have to call the police. You know, we do have to like notify someone. So, you know, just that in itself was kind of, okay, a fight. I think it took me a month to get enrolled in high school. Like when you were in telling, I don't know, were you like, I'm from a cult? I'm from the children of God? Or did she probably didn't even know the name cult at the time. I'm assuming. <laughs> so yes. Um, I did not tell them. Um, okay. I told them, you know, my parents were missionaries in Mexico and I was homeschooled my whole life, which was what we thought. Yeah. Um, I did know the word cult because we spent 
so much more time than is ever necessary discussing why we weren't a cult, um, okay. which is what you only do if you're a cult, right? Um, <laughs> so, and I mean, like the first time I drove through Waco, I was expecting it to look like an apocalyptic landscape because the only thing I knew about Waco was both that's a real cult, but also this is what the evil American government will do to you if you're different, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they played both sides of that. Yeah. So I did not realize actually until I was 17, um, which this is, you know, another moment in my book, I'm already enrolled in high school and I'm watching the news one day before going to school. And I hear the name Davidito, which I never thought I would hear again, which is the son of, well, the founder's wife from flirty fishing, right? From the, the prostitution for Jesus, they started having all these babies, which they called Jesus babies, which were like extra honorable. And this kid, Davidito, who was raised as Berg's experiment of how to raise like sexually liberated children. And so basically his nannies were performing sex acts on him since birth. And they wrote a book about it called the Davidito book. Uh, which has been referred to as, you know, one of the worst cult art, artifacts of all time. And so he grew up, he was being groomed his whole life. You know, he was going to be the next prophet. He was going to be the one that takes us through the, the apocalypse. And he grew up and was like, forget this, got out of the cult, um, and then went through like a, a really, really bad time, which eventually culminated in him doing this murder-suicide, which was why he was on the news. So he found one of his abusers and killed her pretty violently and then killed himself. And I mean, his whole thing was like, he felt so responsible for all of the abuse that we all suffered because he was used as this model. Um, and I, I remember very clearly, you know, standing there watching the news being like, you know, like, like, like pausing in between my coffee and being like, Holy oh, shit. I grew up in a call, <laughs> you know, like that's what light bulb. <laughs> I had had these moments before in high school, like hearing students debate and being like, oh, I'm not from another country. I'm from another planet, you know, but I had never sort of put together. We're from a cult. And then I swear two days later, I go, you know, in my English class, we have to write the essay for college as one of our assignments. And the prompt is, what makes you different? Um, and at that point, I was like, I was raised in a cult. Like, that was the title of my essay. And I feel like you could was, literally write that. I feel like you could write, I was raised in a cult, period. Take me was, in. Uh, give, give me a full scholarship if you want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> that probably would have worked. Um, the the one-page essay called I Was Raised in a Cult worked pretty well, you know, and I got my my high school counselor which I still think is amazing to this day because there was four counselors and 4,000 students. So out of her 1,000 students, she, you know, read my essay, called me in, you know, I don't think anyone at the school realized until that point that I was like a teenager living alone, supporting myself through school. And, you know, I got, I got financial aid. I got like for, for high school, I got help to go to college. They helped me like with that process, which is just, you know, the hardest thing about going to college is knowing how to go to college. And I, I did end up to Liat's point, you know, winning about 24 grand in scholarships uh, because 
I don't not win essay competitions with that story. So <laughs> you're a shoe in girl. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. I'm sure anyone listening right now is just like, wait, what? <laughs> like everything you say, I'm like, wait, did you say three years old? Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say this? <laughs> you know, and it's just so shocking to hear. But I just want to talk a little bit about what, why would people follow this? What were they doing to, because I mean, obviously this is just fascinating from a behavioral angle as to why people do these things. What kind of people are they getting? Um, is what's their MO? Is it for sex? Is it for money? Because as far as I know, like a lot of cults are great businesses uh, in terms of uh, their great business model because, and they find a certain selection of people who actually, they don't want anyone who's like too poor to not contribute at all. So can you clarify all these things that I'm saying as to how they get someone on board, um, how they make someone, you know, what are they doing with what we call brainwashing? What are they doing? Yeah. So, you know, for sure. Um, Religions in general are just great business models, and that's a whole, you know, conversation. But I think the important part of like cults or new religious movements or even companies, right, that like work is everyone buys into it, right? So I think very importantly, like the cult leaders drink their own Kool-Aid. Like the cult leader believed he was the prophet of God. Like it, this wasn't all a scam because if it was, it's not sustainable for that long. And even as I study it, this, I'm, you know, I'm at Harvard now doing a graduate degree in organizational psychology. And it's like, nobody had this much knowledge in 1969, this much knowledge about how to manipulate humans' behaviors like did not exist, certainly did not exist in one person. And I think this very important piece that people miss when they're talking about cults and all kinds of just extreme ownership groups is that, as I like to just bluntly say, cults do something's right. Cults give people community, right? Which is a huge driver for human beings. And I mean, one of the, in my opinions, one of the number one reasons for suicide is just feeling lonely, right? And you can feel lonely in a crowd. And when you're surrounded by, like, we all know this, right? We've all found a group, whether that's CrossFit or whether that's a, a book club Peloton. with other women. Yeah, whatever it is, like, we've all find a group that we're like, these are my people. And you just get like, obsessed with it. My husband today refers to this as Daniela loves to join cults, you know, because I'll find a new a new group of soul sisters that think just like me and I'll be like, oh my God. Um, and, and cults do that really well. And studies have shown that there are certain types of people that are more likely to join cults, right? And these are the people that are lonely and disenfranchised. But studies have also shown that there are no types of people that are immune to cults and to cult thinking. And, and, you know, cults tend to go through this very specific process that has been called in the literature has been called love bombing. Right. And it's just like, we just, 
when you're new, when you're just checking this out, like we just make you feel so important and like such the center of the world. Which In behavior, we call that pairing, right? They are pairing themselves like, oh, we just love you. We give you all the best things. We have love for you. You have purpose. You you matter. And then they yeah. hook you in. And exactly. And and then of course, you know, with with these apocalyptic cults, it's like once you believe it, I mean, you you now believe like the end of the world is coming, we're on a clock, like we have to suspend everything that normal humans would think is for our greater good, you know, like educating our children or like having creature comforts because the only thing that matters now is winning souls for Jesus. And this is of course why, I mean, all of these apocalyptic cults, right? You have to have an apocalypse. And it's been said about Jim Jones, for example, that there was no way out of it for him other than the mass suicide because he had built it up so much. You can't just walk away from that. And so, you know, in, in Children of God, um, and there's actually a great, uh, in 1993, I want to say this, this man, Rick Dupuy, went on Larry King Live to talk about it. And he had worked directly for Berg. And, and he was talking about how, like, he was forced to have sex with a 10-year-old child because that was what the prophet, like, he had to have all of his people, like, bought in enough. But it's, it's not done as forcing, right? It's done as, like, group behavior, group norms. This is what we do. This is what we believe in. Um, you know, that 10-year-old child was my mother, by the way. Um, and then, but once you've done it as fr from the adult's perspective that participated in this or didn't like protect their children, it's so, so hard then for a human to admit that they were wrong. Right. And if I, I see this analogy, then what, right? Yeah. And I, I, I kind of see this happening these days now that the American Psychological Association has come out and said that like corporal punishment is harmful for children. You know, the debate is over. People that are in the middle of raising children that have been physically disciplined, like they can't, they cannot admit to themselves that they maybe have been abusing or hurting their children. So they just have to keep going. And it's like that, you double, you almost double down. Exactly. And, and you, and you find reasons to justify what you're doing, right? So for example, we didn't go to school, but we could all read the King James version of the Bible by the age of five. And literally on our seventh birthday, we would like get given a Bible and expected to read the whole thing. And, and when you're talking to a five-year-old that can discuss the tenets of their religion with you and in, in very advanced words, you're not thinking oh, this child is being denied an education or this child is being sexually abused. And as in fact happened many times, children were taken away, things were investigated and they were always given back because, you know, these, these children seem fine, which is to this day, you know, my generation tries to get admission from our parents that they did something wrong. And our parents as a generation tend to just say, you guys turned out fine, right? Like you guys had a fun life. You were, you got to know the world, you know, um, almost like Daniela, you're trilingual. How can you say you didn't have a great education? You know, and um, obviously that's not 
how it was inside. Well, it's funny because um, this is totally not the same at all. But growing up in in my family, my parents were both drug addicts and um, it was a really rough childhood. But and, you know, my mom and I have very open conversations, but she's like, you turned out great. Like, look at you. You're successful. You have a good husband. Like, it's always deflected back that, like, because I turned out great, it's like, forget all of the wrongdoings that were done. It's like, oh, but look at you. I'm like, yeah, but do you know how fucking much work this took? <laughs> like, <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, there even ends up being this attitude of, like, oh, so – you know, that's this whole, like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. And people will use that to justify and be like, oh, so it was good what you went through, you know? And I'm like, I mean, I think I turned out pretty strong. However, like, I would take not having PTSD. I'd still be happy to go to a regular school in America and apply to Harvard after like a regular student, you know? <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, I would, I would have been happy to be much less impressive and much more like, just have have had a better childhood, you know. Um, yeah. So, so one thing I just want to point out, since this is behavior bitches, the one thing so they use like the idea in the in the cult, they use the idea of getting kicked out as like a, a they 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 believe it to be a punisher, right? They're like, oh, yeah. okay, that is going to be the be all end all. Okay, another punisher or. A, or they use a threat of like, you're going to die and burn in hell, whatever it is. Um, I just find it really fascinating that for you, so people would think, and this is for any behavior nerd listening, they think, oh, that must be an establishing, what we call an establishing operation to make the the punishment of um, getting kicked out valuable. Right. Like you're you're gonna do whatever you can not to get kicked out. But for you, it actually was an abolishing operation. You were engaging in every single behavior you could engage in because to you that was the ultimate reinforcement, escaping. And so I just think it's very fascinating that like they're they're thinking, like, oh my God, we're gonna have to punish her. We're kicking her out. But really, to you, it was a blessing. I mean, you had to go through a different, a difficult time to get there, but look where you are. I mean. It's honestly unreal. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the things me and the the team of amazing women helping me write my memoir, like, discovered as we were trying to, like, figure out how to tell this story, you know, we originally started with this concept of, like, human beings will do anything to be part of a group that they've chosen, right, to be accepted, which is a, a psychological concept that generally applies. And then we just kind of figured out that in my trajectory, actually, like, I'm never that person. Like, I'm always the person that wants to stand out and wants to be different. And, you know, I remember I when I was leaving and I got my first email address and my password was without rules. I was like, I was just so excited to just not have my entire life be controlled anymore. And I'm, I'm struggling in the book to also show, like, how terrifying it is because I was so excited, but it's also very, very terrifying at 15 to just have that everything is terrifying. you know, and, is- and one of the even conversations I've had with my mom is yes, I got lucky right in, in looking back at history. Like I got out at 15, I got an education. I didn't have a baby. Um, however, you know, there's also something to be said for, 
how crappy it is to lose everything you know at the age of 15 just because you're not you know the same religion as your parents or whatever right and and we see this in our society today of people disowning their children for whatever it is and like that in it of itself is traumatic so losing your family and your entire support system at 15 is traumatic even though i was getting excommunicated from an evil cult into like the greater world so both now, of those things but they in uh victor frankel's book from the Holocaust. Why am I forgetting the name? Um, I know. I know of what you speak. Okay. Um, he talks about how humans are creatures of habit. So even if it's suffering, um, I don't know if this part's from his book or somewhere else. So I'm sorry if I'm misquoting. But even after the Holocaust ended, and these, you know, the Jews and whoever else uh, was getting out, they they actually didn't know what to do. They they were like they were like looking for that leadership still because you become so used to it, and I mean when I think of your example, I'm like, how did you do this? Because I remember in high school, my family was like modern Orthodox Jewish, and we observed the Sabbath. So Friday night, Saturday night, we didn't drive, like right, whatever it is, and it's just like you know you go to synagogue. It's like a time for family, and I remember saying like mom and dad. I live in Texas. I'm at public school. I need to go to the football game on Friday nights. This is like social suicide. <laughs> and they're like, okay, fine, go, go. Just don't sleep at our house when, <laughs> when, when you go. Just go. And I'm like, okay, okay. And then I didn't go because I'm like, you know, and it wasn't even like, like you're going to be kicked out. You're going to hell. It was just like, all right, but like not under our roof. So go sleep at a friend's house if you're doing, you know, and then I got scared of that. So just to hear your bravery of like moving to another country, I mean, I can't imagine the the adaptation you had to do going to school. Like it's already hard enough trying to fit in with teens when you're coming moving from one state to another. I can't imagine you coming in, like trying to fit in, figuring out the clothes, figuring out the language. I'm sure your slang was not up to speed of the American kids. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, even any, your eagerness to learn, like kids are, and teens are assholes. Like they're probably like, <laughs> like spitting in class and you're just like, teach me more, teach me more. Like the adult in a college class, when you're like a college student, you're like, oh God, they're going to ask questions again. Uh, yeah. I was definitely that kid that would go eat my lunch, like in the classroom with the teacher, because those were my friends. Those were your and people. And of course, by my lunch, I mean my bag of chips because I couldn't afford lunch. Um, but yeah, it. I I agree with you, Leah. You know, I think it's there's this very hard mental break, and then there's also, you know, I, I found out years later when I was trying to focus on human relations and and trying to realize why I couldn't fit in. About a decade later, I was already an officer in the army, and I was reading this book called Third Culture Kids, and it talks about how. So often when children are coming back, trying to reintegrate into, you know, what is their home culture, but they don't know it, um, they will throw themselves into good grades. And because this is not seen as problematic behavior, it's not seen as a sign of depression, which it is, which was for me exactly what was my entire college and high school experience.
Same, Daniela. Um, I feel you. That was exact. That was me to a T. Like, I wanted to be perfect at school and study everything and be in every single organization, president of this, president of that, and sports teams to like not let people know what was going on behind the scenes. And I've actually seen this now being talked about like for educators, which I think is so great. It's like when you have that perfect child that seems like they want nothing more than to make you the teacher happy. That's another sign to look deeper at. Like maybe that's just their personality, but most likely they don't have, they don't get that recognition at home. They don't have that great home life. And so they get it from the teacher. And, you know, um, I, I should also, of course, give the nod to kind of, I think all the the white privilege that went along and helped me out in my life. And that, you know, from the age of 16, knowing nothing and having no social support I, I had that assumption of she wants to do good. She wants to to get ahead, you know, which I don't think, as I always say, if I looked as Latina as I feel, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have had the same kind of like everyone along my path helping me out that I encountered. So I definitely think, you know, that was a time in my life that I got very lucky or that mm-hmm. was a, something I didn't work for that helped me out. Yeah. And that's good to acknowledge that for sure. Definitely. I mean, this is just, wow. I think we're actually going to have to do another episode with you. And I would like well, to talk about the, the, the military. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. I hope you'd be willing to come back for another episode because I think that we need to do another episode on the military and the similarities between the military and a cult. And also, I just want to, I, I actually want to do an episode on the military in general because I think that's actually fascinating behaviorally that people want to put themselves in those situations and that, I mean, I've heard like people who are, you know, maybe an intelligence or something like are addicted to the rush and want to go back, even though it's putting themselves in danger. So I just, maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I was in intelligence, um, but I mean, I do remember my family asking me, you know, like, why would you want to deploy? Like, why would you want to go to war? And my best explanation at the time was just like, you know, when you get a new job and you train for two weeks and then you want to do your job, like I've been training for almost two years. I'm an intelligence officer. Like my job only exists when we're at war. Like, of course I want to go. But I also think, Liat, to your point, you know, the broader, like the military and its programming, but also what it means to be a woman in the military and you know, right now, as we record this, this Fort Hood report is blowing up and the military is talking about sexual harassment and sexual assault and how it is endemic in military culture, literally programmed into us and like what we can do to change that. And it's actually like, I I have hope, like it's getting attention for the first time at the right levels, right? Sort of the, the Me Too army edition um is is going on right now and that would make i think a fascinating episode to kind of talk about you know programming and cult thinking because really you know people get very upset when i compare these two but i mean my first thought on my first day of basic training was oh gosh i joined another cult like not even in a bad way i was just like they're programming us this is what they're doing i get it and all throughout my time in the army, it was like that. 
and then getting out and now you know as you mentioned in my bio which is like i work a lot in transition and veteran transition and personally like my husband's going through it this year and it's all of those things that apply to everything we just talked about like leaving the call and the struggle and and changing your brainwashing and changing your mind and trying to learn the new slang and trying to fit back in like that all applies like that's all part of why veterans struggle when they leave the military but unless we're willing to call it that right to call it group behavior group programming and cult think and being isolated from the community and all of those things that make it challenging for veterans we just keep creating like new google algorithms that are supposed to help them find jobs and like we think they're going to be fine and it, it doesn't work that way part two oh shit i joined another cult that's the title <laughs> but yes Daniela, thank you for sharing your story, for being so vulnerable, for just being a badass female who, I mean, it's just awesome, like hearing where you're at now and speaking with you, feeling your energy. And it's just so peaceful and good. And like, you can just tell that, you know, what you went through and you're able to just talk about it so openly means you've done the work to like heal. So. <laughs> and, and one thing before we end, I just want to know, so anyone else that you grew up with in the cult, do you speak to them and how are they doing? Yes. So um, I speak to a lot of them. Actually, we have a, you know, very secret hidden group on Facebook that is essentially for second and third generations from our cults to just kind of like, you know, it's based on the concept that like nobody else gets it at it. At, at the deepest level, like there are just some things, some of them are hilarious, some of them are tragic, but like we need to be able to talk about it and work it out with each other. And it was started by a woman who's in school to become a psychologist and it's it's great, you know, and, and we all help each other and, and keep in contact with that. Um, and then, you know, we it, it, it's not perfect, you know, as when have, people Have you lost me. anyone? Has, has anyone taken their lives as a result of what they went through? A huge amount, a huge amount. So of those, I want to say it was 14 girls that were married to the prophet, only half of them are still alive and none of them are 50 yet. So, and you know, a lot of that was from either direct suicide or lifestyle, you know, drugs, alcohol, just not being able to get past the trauma. And, and that is, you know, most, um, I think now I'm at the point that between my cult networks and my veteran networks, I know over a hundred people who have committed suicide. Um, and I think from the cult for sure, like we all go through it. I mean, we, and one of our, one of the good things about our group is we regularly, it's almost like our cult suicide hotline, you know, people will get on there and they'll be like, help, you know, like I'm thinking crazy things and we will all, you know, spend the night on there just like talking people through it but yeah it's definitely one of those legacies i think that that we have to live with and it's one of those things that people feel like will will never get justice from um i mean but, i am just so inspired by you i am literally wow well thank you i mean i was very excited to be on this podcast when I saw this is called like behavior bitches podcast. I was like, sign me up, get me on there. Um, and I, I just, I love what you guys do, which is like 
my explanation of it is like, let's talk about all of these hard concepts and get into it with no taboos because I don't think like people don't want to do that. I get called a traitor every time I talk about, you know, a cult's group behavior and the military's group behavior and possibly suggest they could be related or anything else. You know, I call my family a tiny cult, like group, group behavior is group behavior. And I just love the opportunity to be able to sort of discuss that openly and really get into why do humans act that way? Because as is part of the premise of my book. Like if you can understand how people join the military and stay dedicated for life or CrossFit or any of these groups, you know, you can understand cult mm -hmm. think it is the same thing. And it is, you know, what we're seeing with the polarization in our country right now is isolation and, and group think. So the book is not out yet, but they can follow you on Twitter at Daniela M. Young. And yeah, uh, I have a website, daniellamestinek.com, but Twitter is definitely the place to follow me for like updates on the book and also um, Taylor Swift quotes applied to real life situations. Like that's, <laughs> oh, what you will get. that's what you'll get from my Twitter. <laughs> well, we'll put that all in our show notes. So Daniela, thank you so much for your time. We'll schedule a part two, no doubt. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've had the best time. Um, <laughs> I respect you greatly. I think it is, I know you You are a very positive person and your energy is amazing. And I, and, and you, as you said, I, and I could imagine you having this issue of being able to paint the actual pain that went into this as well, because you're like, oh, I just needed to get out, you know? But I, I think it's like, it's not the same as like, when you're like, oh, I've been in the house with COVID for a while. I just needed to get out. I mean, this is like, I can't imagine what you were dealing with and to see you here, I, I mean, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. I am yeah. dying for your book to come out. I will be <laughs> the first person to order it, so you better let me know as soon as it comes out. Uh, well, we're struggling with publishers because they don't think anyone will buy – publishers apparently don't think anyone will buy this book, and yet everyone I ever talked to is like, oh, my God. So we're on the third round with publishers now, and what – at least what the largest publisher in the world says they're predicting for 2021 is books about books trying to understand group behavior and human search for meaning and unity and why oh, we do that. Oh, that's the name of the book. That's yeah, the name of search for meaning. Yeah. Thank you. That brought us um, that full circle. Victor Frankel's book. And so we're hoping, so January is going to be kind of our third and last round of you know, I've got the big New York agency trying to sell the book to publishers and hopefully that gets picked up. But if it doesn't, I also have the book and I will just probably self-publish it and try to do my own promotions. So we'll yeah. promote you. Don't worry. We'll, we'll promote you. Seriously. That's amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was amazing. And I'm so thankful that you came on and shared your story. Yeah. No, um, I mean, I, I love what you guys are doing. So I'm so glad you found me and, and reached out. And I just think everything, you know, fits the context of right now, which is like women being like, yeah, we can be badass and also be goofy and, <laughs> and be smart and be funny and be real and, yes. and be imperfect. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think it's awesome. And well, thank I'm you. Come out. It's coming.
All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. You know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You can find us at BehaviorBitches.com. And if you want to support us for as low as $2 a month to keep this podcast coming out for you every week on Monday, you could go to Patreon.com slash Behavior Bitches Podcast. And as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard, because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 